Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello. In 1815, John Adams wrote to a correspondent, Jedediah Morris, to be precise, of the importance of all possible things of the Boston Committee of Correspondence for World Political History. Adams wrote, I never belonged to any of these committees and have never seen one of their letters sent or received. But in my opinion, the history of the United States never can be written till they are discovered. What an engine! France imitated it and produced a revolution. England and Scotland was upon the point of imitating it in order to produce another revolution, and all Europe was inclined to imitate it for the same revolutionary purposes. The history of the world for the last 30 years is a sufficient commentary upon it. That history ought to convince all mankind that committees of secret correspondence are dangerous machines, that they are caustics and incision knives to which recourse should never be had but in the last extremities of life the last question between life and death. My guest, Michael Alpa, believes that John Adams was, despite his typical gift for epistolary hyperbole, absolutely and interestingly correct in this instance. And Alpa makes that argument in his new book, Friends of Freedom, The Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. Michael Alpa is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Missouri. This is his second book. Micah, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you, Al. Great to be here. So um, your argument basically is taking, basically, your argument is John Adams' argument. Is that, Would that be right? Or how would you put your argument in your own words rather than, you know, the cranky second president of the United States? John Adams is certainly a central character in the story that I'm telling here, but someone who came down very much on both sides of the question, depending on the given moment in time. So in the 1760s and early 1770s, he was very much a skeptic about the Sons of Liberty and non-importation compacts that marked America's pre-revolutionary progression, but also someone who very much got behind the committees of correspondence that helped mobilize the uh, American Revolutionary War. Later on, he was opposed to the rise of the Democratic Republicans, indeed was probably the uh, person who benefited least from it in how it broke apart the Federalist Coalition, of which he was the leader. But even though This model did do a lot to help end his presidency and eventually the Federalist Party. Nevertheless, he realized its importance. And certainly, as historians, it's hard to disagree with him entirely in that certainly these movements led in many different directions, as most famously with the French Jacobins, not all of them uniformly positive. But looking back at this era, I argue they really do provide a, a central way to make sense of the rise of social movements as um, a historical concept and really gives us an important uh, way to look at the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. But And even more than that, Adams makes the claim, I guess a sociologist or even historians would say, there's a genealogy here. 
Mm-hmm. And that they're of world historical importance. Now, you know, I remember actually reading this letter at some point in grad school and saying, oh, God, there you go again. But you're saying, Micah, he was right, that there is a genealogy. And this is the exciting part of your book, that you can trace it. You can trace the influences going from Boston to London, back across the Atlantic, and then back across the Atlantic again to Paris or Bordeaux or wherever. And then back across the Atlantic again. It's like a it's like a political uh, political culture pinball machine. And you know, I wasn't expecting that when I got this book in the mail. I mean, you know, this is what is so revelatory about it. Quite right. I, it wound up becoming a significantly longer book and more intricate <laughs> project than I had initially anticipated to be the case. But seemingly every major social movement that I looked at from this era seemed to have really important connections with the movements that came before it and those that followed. So this really begins with the American Sons of Liberty and Committees of Correspondence that did so much to bring on the Revolutionary War, then moves across the Atlantic, helping to inspire uh, British parliamentary reform, campaigns for Irish self-determination, movements for religious liberty and abolitionism. And of course, those last two had strong campaigns in the early United States as well. And then in the second half of the book, I move into how uh, this model helped spark the French Jacobins, which then in turn helped create the United Irishmen, more radical British revolutionary and indeed counter-revolutionary organizations. And then finally, I bring it back home with the rise of the American Democratic Party, perhaps the ultimately most successful of these corresponding organizations. These are influences and cross-fertilizations. This is an open pollinating vegetable patch. <laughs> and, <laughs> and they all influence one another or cross-breed and produce different combinations and directions. I think it's, that's important to say. These are not, this is not a factory. It's an open pollination garden. Absolutely. So this is a moment with manifold political crises, um, many of which dating back uh, to similar problems, at least, of uh, state debt, uh, the rise of natural rights, ideology, um, etc. And different liberal and radical movements were very willing to take the best ideas available, even if they came from abroad. Um, So you're a historian of the French Revolution. So, but I, I think it's, you did not do this via the, what's now the more than suggestively named Jacobin Club. Um, you came through it through a different way. Could you, could you describe that? Well, it it involved the French Jacobins, but the pamphlet that really got this project started way back in 2010, in the weeks after I finished my dissertation, which actually was a local history, albeit of uh, Paris during the French Revolution, was um, a work called The Correspondence of the Revolution Society in London with the National Assembly in Various Societies of the Friends of Liberty in France and England. And it told me a really different story about the rise of the Jacobins than I'd ever heard before, one in which they were founded not via abstract Gallic design, but rather on the direct inspiration of their English-speaking counterparts. 
and the key letter was one from the London Revolution Society, largely formed of Protestant dissenters who had been very involved in recent movements for parliamentary reform, uh, religious rights, abolitionism, etc., to the National Assembly in November of 1789, saying that they had seen the aurora of a beautiful day in which the nations could place aside their long-standing distrust and move towards a common future of civil and religious liberty. And it was only days after that that Paris founded its own Société de la Révolution, so directly taking the London Revolution Society's name even, <laughs> um, which only months later became uh, La Société des Amis de la Constitution, uh, its better known title, um, though it still retained the English-style nickname Club de Jacobins, uh, the, the Jacobin Club. Eh? So... Over the following years, um, indeed, there were hundreds of other letters included um, down to 1792 in this collection. There was regular correspondence crossing the channel, and French revolutionaries really were fascinated in how these clubs worked and how they could use them to uh, be the best friends of the Constitution, at least initially, uh, that Mm -hmm. they could be. Uh, So let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to Boston and the Sons of Liberty and the committees of correspondence. So uh, these are the the trampoline upon which you uh, bounce off, and the, or the, the the flipper for the pinball. To go back to the previous metaphor, um, what were they? How did they work? Sure. So the the Sons of Liberty slowly grew out of the incredible opposition that um, existed to the Stamp Act. So the Stamp Act is passed by the British Parliament and makes its way across the water by spring of 1765. And it actually takes several weeks for large-scale street protests, um, effigy burnings, um, etc., to get going. And when it does, it becomes pretty clear if you look at the progression and at the colonial newspapers that they're taking at least some of their uh, ideas and tactics from what is going on in other towns, that they're essentially writing down in as minute detail as they can what happened, and that they're making these protests for um, a trans-colonial and indeed um, imperial audience as much as they're doing so for their own local consumption. And this led many of the new-styled patriots into talking about how they needed to work together if they're going to have any chance of overturning this legislation. And this leads them to contract an alliance. It happens first on Christmas Day um, on frozen fields outside of New London, Connecticut, where uh, the Sons of Liberty, as they're starting to call themselves from uh, across that state, meet with those of New York City and contract an alliance to come with their full force if required, um, if they're called upon. So this would mean bringing tens of thousands of men, um, and at least hypothetically it might have led to a civil war if the British had pushed the, the, the issue of fully enforcing the Stamp Act to the letter. And over the following months, this alliance spreads. By the time the Stamp Act is repealed in the spring, there's Sons of Liberty organizations swearing their uh, support all the way from Portsmouth, New Hampshire in the north to Savannah, Georgia in the south. And um, in how they were corresponding across vast distances, indeed over a thousand miles, 
they help create something new, the corresponding society, which then soon becomes redeployed as uh, uh, Americans opposed the Townsend Acts, uh, Coercive Acts, etc., and becomes really the central driving force in making the American Revolution what it would be. So a, a friend of mine has just started work on a book about the Stamp Act. There hasn't been a book about the Stamp Act or the protests since Edmund Morgan and his uh, w- wife did it, it, which is kind of amazing, especially after reading this. It's an amazing hole in the literature mm-hmm. because, as you said, a thousand miles uh, as a European historian that's pretty amazing. <laughs> I mean, that alone, and that there are these, you know, these 13 clocks that all begin to keep time together. Um, and this is the mechanism by which they do it. It's quite, it's an extraordinary innovation in political culture, really. Absolutely. But my, where I want to push back is, isn't there some kind of precedence for this? Is this a purely novel innovation isn't it a, is it an adaptation of previous you know models or have they stumbled on something new well certainly there are a lot of important origins for this the first of which uh, being the club of which untold thousands existed around the british world uh, during this period And indeed, it was one of the more stylish ways in which to socialize, to show up and hear the latest ideas about virtually any subject. Um, So many things had their own clubs, everything from uh, hunting to uh, philosophy to economics, um, etc. But each of these clubs prided itself on its individuality. Eh, um, They didn't affiliate in the way that corresponding societies later would. Another important origin was the Protestant Synod, um, or indeed congregations of, of numerous other denominations as well. So these have been formed underground during the early phases of the Reformation, um, and indeed, of course, uh, persisted, especially in the dissenting um, churches that were common uh, across the British world. Uh, of course, there were previous military rebel alliances. If we go back into Britain's 17th century history of civil wars, but nothing that looks quite like this, and uh, especially nothing that looks much like it in living memory for someone in 1765. So I I do stress that this really was a, a novel and um, important innovation, if not invention, in the creation of revolutionary political culture. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious about links to stuff from earlier in the 18th century. I'm thinking of the society's late 17th century English societies for cultural reformation that take on mm-hmm. various names uh, that lead to become things like the, uh, the Friends of Dr. Bray, even the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. I started mm-hmm. as I was thinking, my God, there's a really, there's a weird sort of synchronicity between the way the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel actually works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's much less centralized, much less hierarchical. It has to be, as it were, decentralized in, in the corresponding societies. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking that there are uh, uh, things like that. And it's not too surprising to me that you know, nearly every, Protestant denomination in the colonies of necessity is congregational. 
mm-hmm. even if it's a Church of England, which is on paper hierarchical and, and Episcopal, um, it turns out to be in practice to almost necessarily be congregational and decentralized. So there seem to me there, there are certain other there are certain other certain uh, religious and civil society precedents. Uh, but Agreed. as a as a political matter, this is something new. Precisely, that's exactly the um, distinction that I try to draw. That certainly, for religious purposes, you have an incredible amount of various kinds of coordination, including over very long distances. But using um, that to uh, directly influence general political discussion uh, seems to have been a key innovation. So let's talk about. Um, God, this is one of my favorite movements of the 1760s and the 1770s, uh, Wilkes and Liberty, uh, which is um, I think for Americans, uh, it's completely forgotten, uh, but it's a, it's a necessary part of the pre-revolution scene. Um, I had not thought of the ways in which there had was an American influence on this English English movement, although it's an it is an it is a transatlantic movement. So, could you explain what the cause of Wilkes and Liberty is, and and how then um, how British America ended up influencing the metropolis rather than the tail was wagging the dog rather than the way we usually think of it? Sure. So, the Wilkes and Liberty movement, for most intents and purposes, began in 1763 when John Wilkes, um, a somewhat rebellious member of parliament, implied in his newspaper, The North Britain, that the king had lied uh, when he said he had gotten the best possible terms for the the country um, in the Treaty of Paris discussions that had ended the Seven Years' War. And Wilkes made his case still worse uh, shortly thereafter when he published the pornographic essay on woman that brought obscenity charges against him. Eh. So Wilkes becomes celebrated by um, a, a certain type of radical Whig, as historians refer to them anyway, people who distrusted the government, who thought that there was too much corruption, and who were at least starting to think about the possibility of there being a parliamentary reformation. Eh, indeed, it was only during the 1770s, indeed, that parliamentary reform would become a key term for the first time. But Wilkes is forced into exile. Um, He's not terribly interested in prison, so he spends the next few years, down to 1768, cavorting in Paris with the atheist uh, Baron Dolbach and a host of other characters. So it's only in 1768, after the Sons of Liberty has made its uh, big push to get the Stamp Act repealed, that Wilkes returns. He stands for election to Parliament for Middlesex, um, a constituency just outside of London. Um, He's elected, but then is thrown into prison, and his supporters are up in arms about this. And many of his supporters were people who had supported the Americans, feeling that Parliament had overstepped and uh, sacrificed American liberties when it had tried to force through the Stamp Act. So, Wilkes' supporters decide to mobilize much as the Americans had. They create the Society of Supporters of the Bill of Rights in early 1769, and indeed um, elect a Virginian, Arthur Lee. Arthur Lee. Robert E. Lee's uncle of all people. Uh, um, And indeed uh, start to 
make connections both with Americans around London and indeed start corresponding with colonists as well. Indeed, and We have to say, so- Arthur, Arthur Lee is the semi-crack brain brother of Richard Henry Lee, who eventually make the resolution that America should be independent of Great Britain, and who had gone through a period of wanting to be a stamp, uh, stamp tax collector, and then being very much against being a stamp tax collector, and went on to r- write a very influential series of pamphlets in the run-up to the revolution. So we've got a real cross-fertilization, I mean, very direct contact between two flowers here. Indeed, many of these reformers aren't always as principled as they first appear, and indeed that was true of John Wilkes as well. Um, All this money gets raised for him, and after they help get him out of prison, um, many of the society members want to then help other martyrs to liberty as they see it, but Wilkes decides he actually wants to keep the money for himself to uh, finance his dissolute lifestyle. So the organization... As friend of the podcast, Dominic Sandbrook would say many English politicians, including like, for example, Boris Johnson, there's a certain type of them. There's the rake and the roué and the sort of the plunger, the gambler. And John Wilkes is definitely, he and Boris Johnson are part of the same sort of firmament. There are many others of that, but there's a certain type in English politics. And he's, and Wilkes is that type. He's almost the archetype. Quite right. Quite right. So, Wilkes is one of those characters who usually doesn't get a, a, a terribly good um, reputation amongst historians, but nevertheless, he's a key figure and gets parliamentary reform um, into consideration and onto the docket in Parliament in ways that it had never been before. So, what is parliamentary reform? I, it's funny. I was I was looking. What is parliamentary reform in the 1770s? I was I was just looking for a. A different thing. I was looking up uh, how far back Hansard, the reports of parliamentary debates go, uh, because I re- recalled that Samuel Johnson, uh, not a friend of John Wilkes, but friendly with him at, at a dinner party, um, he had written, you had to write, if you're a hack writer like Johnson in the 40s and 50s, you had to write fake debates. So Johnson wrote the debates of the Parliament of Lilliput, I think, and basically recrafted parliamentary debates because it was illegal to report on parliamentary debates. But sometime in the 1770s, it becomes legal to report on parliamentary debates. So I guess that's one of the first elements of parliamentary reform. Would that, that be right? It could definitely be seen that way. And actually, that's one of the few ways in which Wilkes was directly successful, um, that in large part because of um, how much um, agitation he sparked, Parliament does allow uh, reporters to keep notes and publish those notes for the the very first time. Um, Parliamentary reform can, of course, mean a whole lot of different things to a whole lot of different people and would ultimately take over a century, um, indeed, in some respects, a lot more than that, even to finally come to fruition. But some of the main uh, points were that they wanted there to be redistricting. Some areas had grown tremendously, so new, uh, oftentimes industrializing cities um, like uh, Manchester uh, or Leeds or Liverpool, places that had been mere villages back when Parliament had been laid out in the Middle Ages but who now only had county-level representatives. And then there were also places like Old Sarum, which was a destroyed medieval castle, which had something like 12 electors and got their own yeah. member of parliament, as did Oxford and, and Cambridge and various In the words of Edmund Blackadder, Manchester, population 60,000, electoral roll three. 
Uh, that's not really that's not really an exaggeration. <laughs> so there's both big issues over um, the, the the districting, and then also over who gets to vote for parliament. You had to be a freeholder. You had to own certain pieces of property to be able to exercise uh, suffrage. And, um, of course, there are many proposals as to exactly how uh, broad or narrow that suffrage really ought to be. Should it be open to any uh, person who paid above a certain amount in tax, be it great or small? Or, indeed, should there be universal manhood suffrage, something that you don't hear a lot about in the 1760s and early 70s, but which would become uh, close to the center of the movement by the 1790s? So it's important, again, it's not just the fact that Arthur Lee, a uh, former medical student, is hanging out. I think, is he Lord Mayor of London for a little bit? I think he is. Um, it's not just that he's connected with Wilkes personally, mm-hmm. um, or that other Americans in London are very much involved with the Wilkes and Liberty movement. Um, you know, you go to the museum at Colonial Williamsburg, you'll see a Wilkes and Liberty teapot. And I know that Many of these shattered Wilkes and Liberty teapots, and it's like a white teapot with Wilkes and Liberty on the side, a sort of uh, political political tchotchke. Um, shattered ones have been found in trash pits and old wells along the Atlantic seaboard. Um, so there, what do Americans in America uh, who have inspired the mechanisms for this movement, what do they see in it, do you think? Uh, is it because they see this as part of their own arguments for, for parliamentary reform? Yeah, I think they very much saw themselves as part of a common movement towards British liberty. Um, it's important to remember, of course, that America really wasn't all that interested in becoming independent until we get into 1775 or 1776. The very name Sons of Liberty had come from a reported upon British parliamentary debate um, in which uh, Isaac Beret, um, a, a native Irishman, had gotten up and praised the Americans as uh, true-born sons of liberty who had gone out and colonized a, a wild land and so forth. Um, and Wilkes supporters actually talked about themselves as being sons of liberty as well. So there was a sense that these movements were going to rise or fall together, um, that there were real threats um, about the uh, continued independence of parliament, particularly as the king was spending more and more on pensions, uh, essentially bribes uh, to, to, to given members to, to do what he wanted to. Um, but also a sense that there was an incredible amount to be gained, that they could work together in new ways to help craft a new political compact um, using the best ideas of the Age of Enlightenment. Well, uh, that sort of unified translate movement doesn't really work out. Uh, so we go from Sons of Liberty to Sons of Independence, which is an important distinction that we often overlook now. Uh, but let's uh, pass over that. Let's talk about abolitionism. Um, how does this then, um, how do these templates, how do these models then influence the, ab- the growing abolitionist movement? So if you look at the um, uh, American patriot movement over the late 1760s, early to mid 1770s, there's a growing discomfort with uh, the, the slave trade and even oftentimes the practice of slavery itself. Um, Patriots are becoming increasingly otherwise comfortable in making natural rights arguments that they should not just get their traditionally apportioned rights as freeborn Englishmen, 
um, but that they um, ought to have certain universal uh, rights. And of course, trying to square that with the slavery question was notoriously difficult. So I argue that abolitionism first really incubates within uh, the the, the committees of correspondence, um, especially And it's only weeks before the Battle of Lexington and Concord that the uh, Society for the Relief of Free Negroes Unlawfully Held in Bondage becomes the first, albeit quite modest as its name suggests, uh, abolition society um, to to begin um, in Philadelphia with Tom Paine in attendance. Mm -hmm. And then amidst the American Revolutionary War, some of the first explicit um, abolitions of slavery in world history occurred. Um, Vermont, while still uh, briefly an independent nation in 1777, becomes the first to abolish slavery. Pennsylvania decrees a gradual abolitionist measure in 1780. The Massachusetts Supreme Court, on the basis that all men are free and equal, as its state constitution said, um, abolishes the practice in 1783. Mm-hmm. So again, your point is not that there were not pre-existing religious networks because in, in many ways, the Quakers have been engaged in exactly this sort of committee of correspondence thing with uh, monthly meetings as uh, or and since they have a yearly, monthly and weekly meeting hierarchy in the, in the, in the Quaker community, the Society of Friends, uh, they're pressuring one another uh, with letters and the rest of that stuff to, to that every weekly meeting basically kick out anyone who owns slaves. But that's not a political movement. The Quakers, as influential as they are in Rhode Island and Pennsylvania, as wealthy as they are in, in, in also in southern New Jersey, they're, they're still very limited. They're still very tiny. Um, and uh, they can't be compared to basically rewriting constitution the first time that this is that, that this has happened an abolitionist constitution quite right so yeah kind of in a similar method to our earlier discussion about the role of religious societies uh, the quakers you know get several pages in my study and are quite important for understanding the origins but of course they don't remain part of the american revolutionary coalition they're pacifists <laughs> so it's actually right after they drop out of the movement that um, the Philadelphia uh, Society mm-hmm. was founded um, and that uh, American patriots take the, the measure forward, not just as a matter of individual conscience, but rather as something that everyone uh, needs to do as a, a matter of law in those mm-hmm. places where the movement succeeds anyway. Now, does this antedate abolitionist groups and uh, lobbying in in the metropolis in london yes um the first quaker petition to parliament is presented in 1783 right as the american war ends though even then it was still laughed off as a sort of humanitarian measure that sounded great on paper but nobody thought was going to make it in practice it would only be four years after that in 1787 um after Many U.S. states had already um, implemented uh, uh, major reforms or abolitions that um, the massive British movement against the slave trade, though still not slavery itself, got going. So, and are they are these people like Clarkson and and, and Wilberforce? Are they looking at examples that are happening in the new United States, or is that 
or is it just something that's in the water? What's the genea? Is there a genealogy here again? Many of the British abolitionists were drawn from the religious dissenter movement that had already become politicized, largely um, taking inspiration from the Americans. Uh, of course, it's also during the American Revolutionary War that uh, religious freedom is decreed in ways that it never had been in the British tradition, where, of course, there was still an established Church of England. Um, so, yeah, in those chap or in that chapter, I try to look at those connections. But, of course, there were limitations to uh, how similar these movements were as well. Uh, of course, the states that had most of the slaves in 18th century America kept them. And um, only showed a passing interest in reform or abolition measures. So the British abolitionists were really trying to do the most pragmatic good that they could, and they saw trying to shut down the Atlantic trade as being the best, at least first step, to do that with. Certainly people in the 1780s thought that that was a way of of, of stopping, or at least undermining, fatally undermining the institution and leading to a gradual abolition. Um, incorrectly, but there that's a separate, uh, we've done many podcasts on why that didn't work out that way. Um, we don't really have time to talk about the dissenting movements, but this is when we talk about the dissenting Protestant movements, we're also talking about Unitarians, uh, and, uh, as well as, um, the growing Methodist movement and, uh, others like that in Britain, correct? That's right. The, the Methodists are a somewhat more complicated group in that they're yes. still within the Church of England during this era. But yeah, they very much uh, disproportionately lend some of their uh, heavyweights to these various movements. Um, so let's let's get finally to your, your sort of, as it were, home turf. Let's get to France. So um, usually uh, when this story is told, we, we talk about Thomas Paine. And we say, oh yeah, he's like the albatross of revolution. He's everywhere, you know, he's blah, blah, blah. But as your course you're making, this is not just biography. This is political culture. Um, Pain when he goes from England to America to England to France, he's following basically an epistolary network. Uh, and he's he is, by his movements, he's tracing out for us this genealogy that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's absolutely one of the the key figures involved. But I mean, it's more than just him. I mean, <laughs> he it's it's like um it's like putting a, a giving a someone barium to see how their circulation is working or whatever um so you can watch it on the x-ray. Um pain is just the barium. We overemphasize him. Uh what's important what's important is the circulatory network. Definitely. So, I mean, it's one of those half-empty, half-full kind of questions. There's okay. been a whole lot written on Payne and other central figures. But yeah, he's very much showing up somewhat late in the game, almost, yeah, uh, with yeah, the, yeah, exactly. the 1790s movements. Yeah. So let's talk about, then, the influence of where we began and how you got into this. The influence of movements in England on the formation of the I'll just call it the Jacobin Club, since I don't speak the French. Quite right. Uh, So, as I mentioned, it was at the instigation of the London Revolution Society that the French Jacobin Clubs had was in a lot of respects, admittedly, their second founding. There had already been the Breton Club, 
founded at Versailles just as the Estates General was getting going in May of 1789. It had played a key role in things like the formation of the National Assembly, the abolition of feudalism, the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen um, that had happened that August. But then they had largely ceased meeting by the, the, the time that the um, debates over the royal veto had finished. And um, it wasn't clear that they were going to keep going after the move was made from Versailles to Paris following the October days. So Britain really gives uh, the French club movement a shot in the arm. And over the following months, dozens of different cities founded their own Society of the Friends of the Constitution, and the movement keeps growing. Um, there were numerous major divides. Uh, the, the, the club would split in mid-1791 over the question of whether or not to reinstate the king uh, after the flight to Varennes. Uh, there was the Foyant faction um, that took the more conservative side that he should come back, though, of course, that didn't work out well. Uh, in the end for them. Um, then there would be further splits, the Girondins, the, the Ebertis, the Dantonis, as the uh, era of the terror um, accelerated. But the Jacobins were able to maintain an incredible internal cohesion, um, at least amongst their core members, unlike any other group of the era. And they were also willing to embrace uh, radical solutions. They uh, not only helped get the vote um, applied to all male French adult citizens, so this is the first place that universal manhood suffrage um, is uh, put into practice. They debated and, at least on a small scale, managed to implement a lot of uh, social welfare measures that would uh, inspire the socialists of the future. They abolished colonial slavery albeit only after the Haitian Revolution um, had uh, gotten going. Um, so really, when we look at the 1790s, the Jacobins um, are um, the, the central group that people are looking to clear across the, the Atlantic worlds um, for the, the most radical uh, solutions actually being put into practice. So is the Jacobin Club... we would think of it as a political party. But is it also really a club? And if it's a club, how does it work as a club? Because I know I'm talking with, you know, Jeremy Popkin or uh, 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 talking about the last days of Robespierre, uh, I remember recalling, you know, Robespierre going to the club. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a way in which it's still a club, not just a political party, which, you know, successfully proposes lots of social reforms and executes people. Mm -hmm. um, the, so how does it work as a club and how does it, and is it, is the Parisian club setting the agenda for the other, the network throughout France, or is it more subtle and there's a more of a feedback loop going on? It is a very curious organization. So the one rule that they did consistently stick to is that there can only be one club in each city, whether it's uh, 700,000 people or so, as Paris then was, or if it's a village with a few hundred people in it. So the Paris club is different from that which exists anywhere across the, the, the provinces. So you go out in the provinces, you can find 
common uh, artisans, farmers even showing up after work to hear the latest of what was going on in the National Assembly and debate back local and regional issues. But- Where do they meet? They rent a room? They meet in a tavern? What do, what do they do? Disproportionately, they met in old churches and monasteries, as was the case in Paris uh, as of well. Of course they did. Yeah. Yep, they, they took their name from the Jacobin Convent, which actually still was a, a working one in late 1789 when they got started. Though, of course, dechristianization, another of the very large Jacobin reforms, would come along and drive most of those uh, religious sorts out. But anyway, um, the provincial locations were based on kind of one model, but Paris was very different. In Paris, it was where the more uh, left-wing members of the National Assembly and then eventually National Convention, when it takes that name, would go in the evening uh, to form a sort of caucus. Part of this was social, getting to know one another better, Um, but also they would get up and try out the speeches that they were planning to make the next day um, at the assembly. And um, of course, if they got cheered, they might go further in one direction. If they got uh, booed um, or uh, took enough nasty cat calls, they might go in another. And they really weren't as interested in encouraging common Parisians or the, the sans-culotte, as they would become known by uh, 1793 or so, to show up. Though it should be noted that there was um, another network of 48 different sectional uh, assemblies where common workers were encouraged and sometimes even paid for their time uh, by the, the, the worst of the terror to go and um, participate both learning about politics and also influencing things, particularly when their specific concerns needed. So if I go, if I go to the Jacobin club of a, on a Thursday night Mm -hmm. uh, before a big debate in parliament, I'm going to find a lot of people prosing at each other. Um, I I imagine it's a pretty noisy place uh, uh, with everyone. There's probably lots of corners in which people are practicing speeches that they hope to give. And there's probably, of course, probably people gathered around the big names uh, wanting to see what they're going to say. But I'm also expecting that, I mean, are they paying dues? Uh, Because I imagine uh, that they want to have a glass of wine, a cup of coffee as well. And, but also those dues also go to support the activities of the Jacobin Club. That is a significant issue as well. Early in the revolution, the dues are relatively steep, so kind of encouraging a more middle class or uh, yeah, bourgeois boys. set. Yeah, but across the revolution, it falls. So maybe mm. you're bringing your own uh, wineskin with you um, as you come if you're a, a, a common manual laborer by you know 1793, 1794. Eh. And so, and those and those dues go to support the rest of the activities of the of the party, uh, both secret and overt. Yeah. The club, I should say. Yeah. I mean, they weren't terribly interested in talking about money, at least in what records do survive. So, I mean, you still could show up even as a non-member, even at the Paris Club and sit in the gallery. And actually, a lot of women as well as men um, took them up on that opportunity. And of course, if you really disliked uh, what the speaker was saying in an era before amplification, you could drown them out relatively easily. Um, One curious thing 
different people have gone through French revolutionary debates, and there are actually only a few dozen people in an assembly of about a thousand or so who actually spoke on a regular basis. <laughs> it's the Pareto you know, needed, principle of debates. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You needed great lungs just to be heard over the din in a lot of those places. Yeah. So it, you've already touched on this, but it's a very interesting process. I mean, it's like the worst ever clubhouse in history when you know, it's bad enough starting a treehouse and trying to keep certain, like, the girls out, you know, when you're, like, eight. But in this case, in this particular treehouse, eventually you decide they're going to defenestrate a couple of the other people because they have the wrong views on the monarchy or, you know, maybe male suffrage or whatever. And so the, this is the process of radicalization in the Jack, Jacobin Club is, is, uh, involves blood and heads. Indeed. Um, and... Defenestration, at least of a sort, was how the Jacobin Club finally closed. You had counter-revolutionary youths showing up and throwing rocks through the windows, and then they basically make the remaining Jacobins run the gauntlet um, through the night, eh, um, just a few months after the the fall of Robespierre. Though it should be noted that it wasn't a boys' club. Um, there were a significant yeah. number of women showing up. Um, they didn't. They did not get to become voting members there. Though they were at least loosely allied with a lot of different uh, women's societies who were some of the first in the world. And, of course, mm -hmm. some of the people who went there, uh, people like Olamp de Gouge and Mary Wollstonecraft, would go on to play a central role in creating modern feminism. So uh, that was my next sort of question, which I did not put in the notes, and I apologize for this. But is um – are there? I mean, there are sort of there. There are the subsidiary clubs or subsidiary societies. Let's call them. Um, are there other? Uh, do different persuasions of as long as they exist in the revolution? Do different political persuasions have their own clubs based either on the Jacobin Club or either on you know good Republican liberals in London? Um, you know, it, are there other are there other models? Uh, who are influenced by the sort of the Sons of Liberty model in France. Absolutely. Um, early in the French Revolution, there was a society of 1789, for instance, that had the Marquis de Lafayette and a lot of other prominent figures, including some who had firsthand experience of the American Revolution. Um, but mm -hmm. the Parisian populace wasn't terribly interested in seeing avowedly counter-revolutionary um, actors get together and conspire, as they saw it. So uh, attempts to form um, monarchist clubs, at least in the extreme, wanting to restore the, the old regime sense, were uh, usually um, followed by street protests, um, some of which broke windows, uh, beat um people attending, um, or occasionally worse. Mm -hmm. um, how much of this correspondence is preserved that goes back and forth between, I mean, some of it, I, I, I find it impossible to believe. I'm sorry to be cynical about this, but we're historians mm -hmm. that they were not talking about money. Um, uh, money is it, it, it what's the money is the mother's milk of politics as some American political consultant has said. Uh, and, and I just isn't in the 21st century. It's always um, because it's one of the ways you get things done. Um, you got to pay rent or well, unless you seize the church. Um, but there must've been some correspondence. So that makes me wonder what they were, what was burned 
or what was lost, the accounts that were thrown out. So what sort of, what are the archives that preserve the sort of this, the, the correspondence between the various clubs in France? Sure. Well, I mean, as far as the absence of talking about money, at least in uh, the, the main official letters, this was an era that was very concerned with uh, virtue, that they weren't supposed to be focused on the, the money-grabbing details. They were supposed to be doing this altruistically for the good of everyone. Um, though, of course, there still were some pragmatic issues that did show up. One uh, recurring issue that you do hear about is how um, 18th century uh, postage, at least in France, had to be paid by the recipient as opposed to by the sender. So um, if you're wanting to send out circular letters, um, that could lead to a lot of resentment from the receivers, particularly if they didn't <laughs> get anything of that was particularly noteworthy um, or uh, of seeming value. Um, but as far as where the, the correspondence survived. Um, France has a tremendous network of uh, municipal and departmental archives, um, one departmental archive for each 90 or so uh, departments and just about any city um, of any appreciable size um, has its own municipal storage that goes back, not just to the revolution, but oftentimes to the middle ages. Mm -hmm. um, and, I was lucky also in that there was an earlier historian, Michael Kennedy, um, who had gone around and written a beautiful bibliographic essay at the oh, end of his first book on the clubs that told me where to look. And I'm not sure I found anything hugely significant that he had not first laid eyes on. Though lucky for me, he was not very interested in their international connections. Um, well, let's, 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 let's get to those. Um, so this is where the feedback loop gets really interesting. And so as the model goes, uh, as like, go back to the, not, not a bad metaphor, the uh, open pollinated uh, plants, uh, as they pollinate and repollinate, uh, a fruit changes to some degree in, in unusual ways. So we've got the Sons of Liberty model, SOL model, which has crossed and recrossed the Atlantic and now crosses, has, has, altered in France and now crosses back again to America. How does it do that? And what's the result? So it's important to remember that even though we tend to think of the age of revolutions as being a, a relatively short period of time, almost a flash in the pan, it still did stretch beyond the living memory even for a lot of young adults by the time you get to its later phases. Mm -hmm. So by 1793, um, it's 28 years after the Stamp Act and 18 years after the coming of the American Revolution. So um, over the, the years and indeed decades that had followed, America really hadn't continued to use the Sons of Liberty model. It was considered to be something that was useful for overthrowing the alleged uh, tyranny of the British. But um, not considered to be a good practice for the kind of disinterested virtue that they wanted to uh, build in the early American Republic. But even though you didn't have massive organizations corresponding back and forth, there very much had been a Federalist alliance that had pushed for the Constitutional Convention and then had come to dominate politics during the early Washington administration. And many of their uh, pro-mercantile, uh, pro-financier policies had rubbed a lot of common Americans the wrong way. And opposition 
was starting to form. They even started calling themselves the Republicans um, early in 1791. But no Sons of Liberty style organization gets going until the French Jacobins decide to send um, a young ambassador, Edmond Charles Genet, in the spring of 1793. He's supposed to sail to Philadelphia, but gets blown off course and lands in Charleston. And he's the first person to tell them that France has gone to war against that old enemy, Britain. And he spends several days there uh, in the midst of patriotic festivals. And instead of catching another boat up to Philadelphia, he goes north overland and is celebrated in just about every little town that he passes through and gets a grand reception thrown when he finally makes it to the capital. And amongst the people who really wants to get his attention is the German Republican Society of all names. They actually propose starting a new organization. Can you repeat their title again? Because I love that title. The German Republican Society. Eh, I haven't been able to find out uh, much about their origins, but I'd love to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, they they want to found a new Sons of Liberty, but Janae argues that it's the wrong name, that they need to call their organization something that really speaks to uh, what they're trying to accomplish, and he proposes the Democratic Club. So um, it's a Jacobin um, that would give the Democratic Party its ultimate name. And over the following weeks and months, uh, a new sort of Sons of Liberty alliance does then arise, uh, both along the seaboard and also inland as well, most famously in western Pennsylvania, where uh, it helps push forward what becomes the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, Indeed, there is a a Committee of Public Safety formed, using the same name as what the the, the Jacobins were during the most radical phase of the terror. And this movement is short-circuited only when Washington marches an army outwards. The first attempt at the Democratic-Republican clubs seemingly ends in disgrace thereafter. But less than two years after that, it comes back um, in preparation for the elections of 1796. And the the Democratic-Republicans first become a major opposition party, indeed only fall uh, three electoral votes short of the presidency. And then, of course, in 1800, wind up capturing the whole thing, um, helping deliver the presidency to Thomas Jefferson. So let's... uh... And we should say that this is uh, there are other in a, in a way maybe better known influences of the of the Jacobin and model in Ireland and Haiti as well. So we should just mention those briefly before we we wrap this up. Sure. Uh, in Ireland, first a volunteer movement arises in the midst of the American Revolutionary War, uh, calling for national self-determination, try and stop Parliament from having a veto over it as it had for centuries. It succeeded in doing this, and then in 1791, as the French Revolution starts to radicalize, there's a more inclusive movement known as the United Irishmen. That comes at least very close um, to wanting independence uh, from Great Britain through an alliance between the Catholics and the the Protestants, who, of course, had been uh, seemingly almost age-old enemies. Of course, it is uh, crushed um, fairly ignominiously in 1798. 
More successful, however, would be the uprising in the future Haiti. So from the start of the French Revolution, abolitionism is clearly on the table. The French form La Société des Amis des Noirs, the Society of the Friends of the Blacks. They wind up convincing various cities to petition for uh, abolition of colonial slavery as part of their grievance statements. And the abolition of slavery is indeed proposed on the night of August 4th, uh, right around the same time that uh, feudalism is abolished, though French revolutionary legislators weren't willing to go that far that quickly. But by the time that happens in the colonies, um, everyone seemingly is up in arms. Everyone is concerned with their own interests. The planters want to keep the new revolutionary politics uh, just for themselves. The uh, poorer whites want to be included, but then want to exclude the free uh, people of color who are even more numerous. And, of course, beneath that upper still 10% or so of the population lies the 90% or so who were enslaved. They form their own surreptitious uh, gatherings um, out in the countryside. And in the summer of 1791, they rise, um, creating a massive slave insurrection that, albeit only after 13 years of civil war, would eventually uh, found Haiti, um, in many respects, the only successful slave uprising in all of human history. Mm -hmm. So I want to conclude by thinking about sociability and revolution. Um, you, uh, let me read, quote you to yourself. You say, the methods the Sons of Liberty pioneered proved readily comprehensible and adaptable by a great variety of actors over the course of the revolutionary era. Subsequently, Social movement organizing has remained foundational for advancing and maintaining democracies. And I just want to say, I think that you're selling yourself a little short there. <laughs> I think it's a little bloodless. Um, what's really interesting to me here is the way that there is something elemental about sociability at the bottom of political culture. That social movement organizing, I mean, yeah, okay, you know, I mean, it's, uh, that's almost projecting a late 19th century attitude back to this. This is, these are social movements that begin because people like to be together as well. Yeah, sure, they have political goals. But I get back to this thought that um, at the bottom of it all are clubs. Um. You know, it's the New Oxford History of Britain, uh, volume in the 18th century is what, a, uh, a polite and commercial people. Mm -hmm. And the politeness is supposed to you know, capture that sociability of the 18th century. We just talked about uh, Martin with Martin Claggett about William Small uh, and his involvement in both the American Revolution or the, the very early stages of the Stamp Act protests in Williamsburg, but then also very intimate involvement in the Industrial Revolution in both places. Uh, friendship is the basis of everything he does. Uh, sociability is the basis of everything he does. And so what I see in your book and what you're describing is the way that sociability becomes political. Okay, it's already, we we could, which comes first, chicken or the egg thing there. But how, how would you respond to all that, that gas that I just emitted? 
I think you summarize it quite well. Um, you're, you're certainly right that the concept of the social movement did originate explicitly in the late 19th century, albeit by a German sociologist talking about the French Revolution yeah. uh, of all things. But to me, what's really interesting is how uh, local sociability is crafted into something that can have much greater effects by combining their efforts with yeah. all of these different people over such incredible uh, distances. Uh, the, the, the tavern um, or the church for that matter can be fascinating places, but um, that pressure really had not been brought to bear very successfully in the earlier 18th century. So really I see the sons of Liberty as having um, created um, this new uh, method to bring people power to bear um, on these organizations that had persisted oftentimes for too long with too little pressure placed upon yeah. them. Yeah. And I, I, I inescapably think about attempts to create social movements via Twitter. Uh, and I, it, you know, this gets us back to arguments going starting in the nineties in the with Put Robert Putnam's bowling alone, um, which I think has, has stood up to a lot of the criticism, just events have, Born, decades have borne out that he was right about something that was going on back then. Um, and can you have can you have massive social, massive social movements without local sociability? That then and then a mechanism to create them. I'm not sure you can. Or if you do, they're they're certainly they're certainly different. And we might have to come up with a different name for them. Quite right. I mean, I, I still hold out hope that we can, you know, especially now uh, post-COVID, though I did uh, essentially finish this book before the COVID era began. Very we can... productive time for so many historians. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. And actually, the full 12 years that I spent on this project from 2010 to 2022 really brought forward a lot of different contemporary examples of various sorts. So the year mm -hmm. after I started it, um, it seems like uh, the, the Arab Spring was heralding this new era of interconnected mm -hmm. possibility. Um, but, mm -hmm. of course, five years after that, one has the Trump election and um, all that social media yeah. did. Uh, Arab to, Spring to didn't work out possible. so well either. Yeah, Indeed. So, indeed. Yeah. But um, then again, it's important to remember that other than the American Democratic Party, most of these movements did not succeed, at least in their immediate goals. Though, of course, their long-term legacies would be uh, quite important for the, the different nations affected. So I, I, I saw uh, from your webpage at, in Central Missouri that you're, you're working on something interesting. Could you describe what you're, what you're up to right now? Yeah, I'm finishing drafting uh, a new book project called The People's Revolution of 1789. So in some respects, uh, having gone over five nations and uh, 35 years uh, in Friends of Freedom gave me the courage to try and take on all of France during the <laughs> uh, pivotal revolutionary year of 1789. Just so, one nation. It's yeah. easy. It's easy. <laughs> <laughs> but I am the first person to to try and um, do that. So try and make really? sense of the not just the you've Parisian be, context, but also You've got to be the, kidding me. The, the, the French Revolution, one of the most talked about histori historical events in human history. No one has written the book that you're now drafting. No one has brought together the Parisian, provincial, and 
colonial popular movements of that year into a common story. So that is what I am now uh, uh, attempting to do, trying to make sense of what led to this incredible um, upsurge of uh, popular movements and their effects um, in crafting the, the the greatest revolution that the world had yet seen or perhaps still uh, has yet seen. Well, my guest today has been Michael Alpa. He is the author of Friends of Freedom, The Rise of Social Movements in the Age of Atlantic Revolutions. Micah, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you very much, Al. And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about and to shape the way we think about the present. <laughs>